like a tornado. Good evening. Welcome to the Wednesday night service at the Boonville Church of Christ. We're very pleased you're able to join us. Uh, it's a blessing that we're able to do this and use modern technology to get the word out. Uh, in a few moments, Brother Ken will be bringing the fourth part in his uh, series of strengthening the church, and we all look forward to that. So uh, let's open with a prayer, and then uh, let's listen to Ken's lesson. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to be able to learn thy word in such times. We're so grateful to have the resources that we have. May we never take for granted the gifts we've been given. May we never take for granted the people that are in this congregation. May we always do the best we can. May we always spread thy word. And most of all, may we never forget that everything we have would not be, for it was not for your son Jesus who died for each and every one of us. Dear God, thank you for all that we have. In your son's name we pray, amen. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Jerry and his family have suffered with the virus, but thankfully they're back, and it's great to have him here with his very authoritative voice to kick off our lesson here for tonight. Now, I'm very thankful that you've chosen to be a part of our study Actually, I think it's a, a terrific notion that we can step back and, and look at ourselves and ask the question, how could we do things better? How could we be better? How could we be great? So these lessons are designed to help us to become, if we're not already, a great church. And each one of us has our own particular role to play in the building of that church. We've been looking at some aspects of that. First three lessons dealt with some building blocks that are going to be foundation to further studies. When we started this, we really looked at our purpose as a church. And we asked ourselves, how can we have a great purpose? We just simply looked at the scriptures and they just, they give a beautiful roadmap of exactly what we should be manifesting as a mission in the church. And if we'll follow that, well, we'll be a great church. We saw our responsibility as individual members in the body. And so we saw how it is that we could have a great church regarding our great unity of our oneness. At the same time, we talked about compassion that we're to have for one another a great compassion, one that looks after every single member, no matter who they are. And then we talked a little bit about what it is to be our brother's keeper, to be so concerned about one another and getting to know one another, the lives that we live and being involved in one another's lives. Last week, I encouraged us to endeavor to look after the idea of preaching and not just to have a great preacher, but as a congregation to expect that our preacher is going to give us what the scriptures 
have encouraged and taught him to give. So we're going to expect great preaching. Now tonight, along with this series, we're going to take it a step further. And we're going to understand that we must be a people who follow great leading. And that leadership tonight, we'll see, comes from our elders, who are our primary leaders, and that of our deacons, who we'll see are involved in tremendous works in the Lord's body. Before we start that, let's pray that God will, will help me to communicate in a way that will be helpful for this study. Listen, I, I want nothing more than to provide those things from the scriptures that will help us to be a great church. And so I ask, I solicit your help in that and praying to God for my part. And then we're going to pray also for your part. Look, we're in this together. So if every individual has a role to play, that means you specifically have one. And I'm going to be praying that you'll learn what's necessary for you as we all work together for the good of this congregation. So let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you so much for the blessing of this day and for the opportunities that you have put in all of our hands. And Lord, this here right now, this study of your word and this preparing ourselves to be a great church right here in Boonville, we count this as a great opportunity too. So Lord, help us to take advantage of all that is within our reach here tonight. Help me as the teacher of this subject to be uh, a good communicator, to express those things that will be helpful, both, both to our understanding of what the elders do and also the deacons and anybody who's in those roles or who aspire to those roles. I pray that this provides information that will be helpful to bettering them, either in the role they're playing or what they're aspiring to. And then I pray, Lord, for our hearers that you'll help them to embody these teachings, that the application will be so easy, and that we'll be able to follow together the things that we find in the scriptures, convict us when it's necessary, and encourage us to do better as we move along. Thank you for that opportunity, if nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a great text in the book of Judges, chapter 5 and verse 2. It says that when the leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Now, when I read that, I'm convinced that the latter statement is dependent on the previous statement, that one follows right after the other. This conclusion I draw. You know what? The people will willingly offer themselves. They, they will absolutely be a part of the work. They'll be all in, as we sometimes say, if when they look at the leaders, they see that the leaders are actually out there leading. I have every confidence that what was going on with Israel right there is something that would absolutely be applicable to us and that we could fulfill that. We might otherwise express it this way if we were to appropriate this text for ourselves. That when our leaders right here in Boonville lead, that we as a body, we are going to willingly offer ourselves to that work. And when that happens, you know who's glorified. It's not the leaders and it's not the people. It is God who is glorified because of all of us doing our part and encouraging one another. 
Now, I'm looking at that time, and I realized that those leaders, well, that was primarily Deborah and Barak, who had been called to lead the children of Israel into battle. And there was a lot that was going along in that. But the people looked at them, and they saw the commitment that they had, and they said, you know what? Those guys are willing to put it all on the line, so that's exactly what I'm going to do, too. Now, in the church, we have our leaders, and as a result of what they do, we are encouraged either to move forward or we become discouraged, and that creates a disheartened situation, one that's very difficult for us to rise up from. So tonight, I want us, as members of this body here in Boonville, and if you're joining us from other places, I, I hope that you'll have the con same considerations for the places where you are. That we must, as a people of God, be willing, be committed to following leadership when leaders lead. Now, we're going to break this down into two sections. The first, we're going to talk about great elders and understand that great elders must lead. We're going to look basically at one section of Scripture. So you can open your Bible up to 1 Timothy and chapter 3. In this section, the first seven verses are going to deal with qualifications for elders. And then verses 8 to 13 are going to talk about qualifications for deacons. These are very detailed, and we're going to use these kind of as a... Uh, platform from which we're going to launch into a lot of things related to these particular leadership roles. Now, this one, as regards the elders and their leadership, it's, it is such a beautiful section of Scripture. In fact, he says, you know, th this is something that is absolutely worthy of our consideration, something to take note. And he says that if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. And so that which is under consideration here is something that not, not only is a call of God and specifically oriented to those men who have set their minds on following after the way of God and ordering their lives in a particular way, but also that which the person in the right mindset, the person that has set his life on the right path, probably is already aspiring to. And so Paul says, you know what, this is, this is a faithful saying. This is something that's absolutely true, that if you are one of those men who is desirous of that position, then let me just encourage you, you are desiring a good work. And he says a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the house of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, you must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, here are qualifications, and when I say that, I, I kind of step back from it. I, I know that as he began this text, and he'll do the same thing with the deacons beginning in verse 8, 
that these are things that must be in place. You know, if he's, he's wanting to be a bishop, boy, he's desiring a good work, but he must be these things. Some people have tried to parse that out and say, is he really telling us that this has to be this way? <laughs> and actually, the more you dig into the original language to try to discover the answer to that question, the more you realize, yeah, actually, what he's saying is, these are, these are characteristics that, you know, all embodied in one person, kind of unusual. It's unusual to find somebody who has all of this. But for the role that he's going to play in the Lord's church, these things absolutely have to be in place. And it's not just the sense of qualification. Yeah, these are, these are necessary things, but the more I read this and study it, the more I realize that the qualifications are just kind of a reflection of what's necessary for a man to accomplish the kind of work that God is calling him to do. Now, I wonder sometimes, what, what is it exactly that an elder, or as he says here, a bishop, or other texts say, an overseer, or a shepherd, or a pastor, what is it that they do exactly? And I'm just going to tell you, it is a work that is absolutely heavy. Let's look at a few passages together. One is Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Paul's been talking to the Ephesian elders. And boy, he gets real serious with them because as shepherds, they have to have a mindset of taking care of the flock of God. So he calls two things to notion. He calls the sense of them being shepherds and overseers of the flock. A shepherd is somebody who sees to the feeding, the care, the absolute oversight of the sheep. Now, I've never worked with sheep, but here's something that I understand about sheep. Sheep are, are pretty dumb. <laughs> they, they need a lot of help. Uh, they'll get themselves in all kinds of trouble. They are a natural prey to just about every kind of predator. So Paul, in concern of them, says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. You, you have a sense of oversight and you have a sense of shepherding. That is, you understand that the care, the concern, the protection of these members of the church is absolutely yours. Another text that comes to mind is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Now in that text, in verse 1, Peter reminds us that he himself was already an elder. And so in this text, he does basically the same thing. He says, shepherd the church of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. Listen, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, where Paul was talking about generally of, of shepherding and overseeing, He'd already talked about some circumstances that they were going to be facing in the future. Here, Peter, as an experienced shepherd of the sheep, says, okay, understand that, that there is this mindset. Yeah, you're going to shepherd the flock of God which is among you. And I might note with you right there that if that 
flock is among them, then it necessarily implies they're right there with them, right? The shepherds, shepherds aren't a group of people that are just kind of an adjunct group of folks just come in. Uh, They're people who are among the flock. And so understand, Peter says, you're with them. You're going to shepherd them from the inside, not from the outside. You're a part of these people. You're going to shepherd the flock which is among you. You're going to serve as overseers, so you're watching over them. You're not going to do it by compulsion. That is like you were forced to do it. You're going to do it willingly. You're not going to do it for dishonest gain. That is, you're not doing it looking to line your pockets and take advantage of people. You're going to do it eagerly. I'll do this because I have the right heart about it. Nor is being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. In other words, you don't just sit back maybe from your office or on some elevated place and say, you do this and you do that. No, you, you set the example. What you would ask people to do or the kind of ways that you want them to participate in the life of the body, that is something that you are going to emulate in your own life. You set the example. Another text that would come to mind is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. And in that text, as he's talking about leadership, he said that they actually labored among them So that goes with what we've seen already. They're a part of the body. Then he says that they are over them. But keeping in mind what Peter says, not to lord over them, but to be an example. And then he says, well, now also you admonish them. So we've got three functions here that I think are are beautiful to the life of the church. If if a person is going to be a great elder... Then he understands he's laboring, that is, he himself is working with the flock, just as they are working. And then he's over them, that is, he, he's watching over the work of the overseer, see to it that the work, work is being done, and uh, kind of watching, you know, for any dangers or whatever, what, what needs to be fed, I'm going to provide the supplement for that. And then also a- admonishing, maybe something gets out of whack. You know, sometimes you've got the flock of the sheep, and one of the sheep goes astray. What do you do, just let it go? Well, of course not. No, you've got to go get that sheep back. And so, you know, if someone's not, not functioning or pulling their weight or doing the thing that they're required to do, the, the work that the Lord has put on them, then you admonish that situation. You are looking to every single aspect of the work of that church. And, and then another text that we might bring in here is Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. And in that text, he said, obey those who are over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, two things and then a result. The first is, look, if you have elders over you, then have the mindset that I'm going to obey what they said. The reason I would obey that Go back to those original qualifications. Those are people who are grounded in the truth and they've got experience in the faith. So they've been around the block, so to speak. They've dealt with the world before. They've probably been through some of the things that I'm struggling with. So I want to obey them. I want to set my mind and be submissive. That is, just as the wife is submissive to the husband, that doesn't mean that there's any inequality there. They're absolutely equal. In the body of Christ, we are equals. But each one has a particular role. So if I'm going to recognize that this person as an elder 
or the bishop or the shepherd or the overseer, if, if he's responsible for my soul, as this text indicates, then I'm going to give a lot of credence to the things that he has to say. I'm going to listen to his experience and I'm going to listen to the wisdom that he espouses by direction of the Word of God. And when I hear those things, I'm going to be submissive to that. I'm going to be like, hey, you know, peace. Hey, maybe I was looking at that the wrong way. Or, you know what, the perspective that you have, thank you for bringing me back. Having an attitude that says, you know what, I recognize that you in this role, you have someone to answer to too. Uh, you have a responsibility, as Peter would say in 1 Peter 5, the chief shepherd and so I'm going to submit to your leadership, and I'm going to be trusting, just as you are leading, that as I follow, I'm going to be able to benefit from those things that really make you an exemplar or an example of the faith in my life. He says, you know what, you ought to be of such that you cause a person who's in that position to serve with joy and not with grief. And the reason why is because if they serve with grief, if it's always a stressful position, then honestly, when it comes right down to it, that's not gonna be good for you. When someone serves with joy, when they're watching over a group of people who are working for the Lord and dedicated to His glory, when things are going smoothly, that joy just permeates. It goes through everybody. But I'm telling you, when that isn't present, there is sorrow enough for everybody and so much more. Now, some of you, you're elders right now. And maybe when you think about these texts, you examine yourself and you're striving every day to be what God's called you to be in the very beginning. Uh, maybe you're married to an elder or Maybe you're like me. Maybe you grew up or are growing up in a family where your father or your grandfather or some relative is an elder in the church. Listen, my experience in a home where my father was an elder, I have nothing but absolute respect for those men who have humbled themselves, assessed whether or not they were qualified, and then desired that position, or some translations say that office of bishop, because that is a, many times a thankless position. I remember many times my dad staying up late at night, either he was on the phone with someone who had spiritual circumstances that maybe had gone awry, they needed, they needed a shoulder to cry on. I remember many times my dad being called late at night. Maybe someone had died or very ill in the hospital. I've had people show up at the door who were in need. I remember many times my dad bringing folks home, strangers to us, but they were in a desperate situation in need of care because he had the mentality of a shepherd, an overseer, of an ambassador for Jesus then he took in those cases with the hope that not, not just that that situation would be resolved somehow, but that a soul would be saved. I have all kinds of respect for the difficulty that many men face as they strive to be the shepherd that God's called them to be. 
You know, when everybody's on board, that's easy. But when tough decisions have to be made, sometimes, sometimes people get their feelings hurt. Let's, let's set our mind that we're going to help our elders if we're going to be a great church. We're going to help our elders to serve with joy and not with grief. Now, what kind of things, just think about what we've talked about already, the qualifications, and some of those other passages, some of the things that we saw there in particular about shepherding and overseeing. What are some general things that we would look for? What should I look for if I am an elder now? Make sure that, you know, I've got my, got my life in order. Or if I'm aspiring to the eldership, what are some things that maybe, maybe I'll look at in my life? Are, are these already present? Maybe it is that, that I've met a lot of these things and I'm ready to take that next step. I'm desirous of fulfilling a role that I believe God has made me very much equipped to satisfy. Well, one thing I think that's apparent here is that this man is going to be sound in the faith. That is, he's going to have a good understanding of doctrine and truth. And not, not just to be able to understand it, but you, you notice in the text that he was able to teach. This doesn't necessarily mean he does it in a public setting, but certainly privately, he ought to have sufficient biblical knowledge that he could uphold the truth and, and share that truth with someone else. There's nothing more comforting to know than that we have leaders who are in positions of authority over us who have a great understanding of the scriptures and can use that word in order to benefit us individually. I also see in this, I'm going to say this at the beginning just to get it out of the way, but here is a person who is not interested, not interested in the authority or the power that the eldership represents. In other words, this is not a person who's motivated by a position of authority. This may be a position of authority. This may be a position of oversight and shepherding and concern for every soul and admonishing people when they step out of line. But this is not his primary consideration. This is just something that kind of comes along with the responsibility. He does not have the mind, I'm going to lord over these people. I'm finally going to be in a position where I can get my way. Lord, help us if we're going to be a great church not to have a mentality that is driven by power and authority. We don't lord over, but we set the example for the flock of God. Peter, experienced elder and apostle, said himself, we're going to have a person who, and, and how do I put it, I, I guess to say, that has enough energy and mobility to be able to function as a shepherd and an overseer. And what I mean by that is, you know, with a, a congregation, especially one our size, it's going to be necessary. And I will say with this little caveat, right now it's about as difficult as it could be. But eventually, when all this is lifted, that we've got to have leaders who are willing to visit and go see folks where they are, not, not just when they assemble on the first day of the week or the midweek Bible classes, not, not just on those occasions, but actually get into the homes of their members. Now, you've probably discovered this, that those people who are closest to you, they're close because you know them on several different levels. 
you may know them from work, but a work friend's quite different from somebody that we spend time in, in recreation, or maybe we go out to eat once in a while, or we spend time in one another's homes, we know each other's families. We are, as much as we can be, intimately connected with other people. If an elder, a bishop, an overseer, a shepherd, is going to know his sheep, then he's going to know them apart from this fine facility. He's going to know them where they are, the kind of work that they do, the kind of circumstances that arise in their lives, those things that are heavy on their hearts. They're going to know their sheep, and their sheep are going to know them, that kind of close abiding relationship. I think something that was pretty important that was mentioned in a couple of these passages was the idea that that bishop, that elder, is going to be somebody who leads by example. He isn't a lord over people in the sense that, well, I want this done, you go do it. Them thinking in the back of their mind, boy, I'm glad I got so-and-so to do it because I sure wouldn't want to do that job. <laughs> no, no, sir. Uh, one who's in this leadership position is somebody who is willing to step out there themselves and lead the way. And isn't that how we learn to do things? Right? We work with others, maybe have more experience in it. We learn from their activity, their approach to a thing. We benefit from the wisdom that they have in the application, in our case, of biblical truth. And as, as we learn that, then we become more confident. And then eventually, maybe we can take the lead. But great leaders get right in there with the work itself. I also think that as regards our leaders, that there has to, be, has to be a great impact that that leader has on their community. If nothing else, that the kind of character that they have as a person is exemplary in their community, not just among the members of the church, but people in, in the outstanding community, surrounding areas, people who don't even know Jesus, recognize that person as an upright person. Now, they may not agree with everything that they have to say or positions even that they take, but they respect them because they have an honest character. And of course, you and I will know that that character is governed by their relationship to Jesus. And so by extension, I guess, I would say that, hey, when it comes to our elders, when I, when I look at them, not only am I looking to follow an example, but I'm looking at them as a representative, a living representative of what Jesus would be. Because all these characteristics basically reflect who Jesus was. When we embody that as following the example of our elders, then we're, I guess, contributing to their joy rather than their grief, right? <laughs> how, how frustrating is that to be a leader you're trying to set that example and nobody's following it. Listen, we all have to be on board. And an elder, a leader in our church who sets that example, not just among us, but actually out there in our community is one that we can have a lot of confidence in. We also want a leader who has great convictions. We may not agree totally with every decision that's made, but we will understand that when those elders have made a decision, that they have made a decision based on the information that they had and that they grieved over and did their very best, honestly, to make that decision on the basis of what they understand 
is the Lord's will in the thing. After all, keeping in mind that, again, they answer to the chief shepherd. And so as they make these determinations, then I'm going to understand, wait a second, I may disagree, but I understand they came to this they came to this conclusion on the basis of conviction. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to acquiesce. I'm going to set aside my, my own desires in order to pursue and stand with my leaders. Because after all, what that text say? That the shepherds are part or in the midst. They work with and labor with the flock. I'm also thinking that I want to see men who have great compassion I guess eventually, maybe not in this study, but in studies future, we'll talk about what compassion really is. And I just want to share this with you, just a simple form. That compassion literally means with passion. And passion literally means suffering. So let's back up and put that together. It means with suffering. Compassion is with suffering. Which then means, by extension, that when, when my elders, when they're concerned about me, it's not just, well, I got this name on this list, I'm going to check them out and then take them off my list. I, I'm, I'll check on them again in a couple weeks. But when something hurts me, I'm going to know that as my shepherd, knowing the sheep and having the heart of Jesus, when they learn what's on my heart, what's hurting me, it's going to hurt them too. In other words, they're going to suffer with me in this. Now, I mentioned my father. Listen, I never saw my father in my presence shed a tear. But behind closed doors, I've heard him crying many, many times because of a passion that he had for those who were hurting. I'm expecting that those who are shepherds and overseers, those who are intimately involved with our lives, are going to suffer right along with us. Now understand, that's not just when maybe I'm recovering from something, right? I've been sick. Boy, have compassion on me. You know, I, boy, I hurt. Not, not that. But, but what about our spiritual revival? What about those times when we've gone astray? We needed to be admonished. We, we refrained. We turned our back. And then eventually we came back, just like the prodigal son returning to his father, what, what, a, what a joy and celebration, what a relief and compassion of a heart of one of those elders who receives back into the fold a sheep that has gone astray. And then, just in my mind, I hope you're able to do this too, and I'm sure your list will grow as you think about these things, but one thing that came to mind to me, kind of as a, a final point, is that when I, when I look at my elders, I think friend, my friend. I, I want to know that my elders, my shepherds, my overseers, my pastors, that they are people that I can, I can trust and I can lean on, that I can truly think of them as my friend. Now, I've, I've been lots of places, either I've worked or I've visited, uh, had experiences with churches, and, and I've heard church members say things like this. Well, you know, like we've got five or six elders, and, you know, I can't really talk to all those. I can talk to so-and-so. 
I talked to so-and-so because I trust them. And I immediately think in my mind, oh no, <laughs> oh no. Here's someone who has in mind the only one I can really trust is this one. That ought not be how a great church functions. Now I understand, maybe you grew up with so-and-so who's an elder in, in your congregation or maybe you're even related to one of them and you just, you know, you feel a close connection. Hey, peace, I, I get that. There are some people that we just, what, we just have a better rapport with and them with us, we just feel closer to. I, I get that. But God help us that we never have the idea that there's only one of them I could ever talk to. I hope that we can look at every single one of those men who are qualified according to these scriptures and who have these attributes and these kinds of hearts that I could look at any one of them and trust them to see after the needs that I have spiritually. Great elders must lead. But great deacons must work. Now, I like how verse 8 begins. Likewise, deacons must be. And stop right there. Likewise, in the same way that those elders must be these things, or, or the bishops, that was the word in our text, just as much as these bishops must be these things, he says, well, these deacons must be these things. Now, there are a lot of, a lot of terms here that are going to be similar that we saw, like he's got to be reverent, He's not got to be double-tongued. That is, when he speaks, he doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. Uh, he's not going to uh, be given to much wine. He's not going to be greedy for money. But this says that he holds the mystery of the faith, the mystery of the Word of God. And I love that. And look at your text. He, he, he holds the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. The sense of that is... That he's living it, right? He isn't expecting other people to do it. And he's just kind of sliding out the side. This is a guy who's absolutely dedicated to the word of God. And he's, he's very serious about that. Now, what I don't want you to think is, well, he must be a junior elder. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and deal with this for a minute. Elders are elders. They lead. Deacons are not elders. Deacons are deacons. And deacons work. Now, you say, why did you say that? That's about as simplistic and elementary as can be. Of course, an elder's an elder and a deacon's a deacon. Well, notice what I did not say. I did not say elders are elders and deacons are junior elders. The Bible doesn't teach that, well, in order to become an elder, you must first be a deacon. And then when you're a good deacon, you've been a deacon long enough, then you can be an elder. That, that's not what the scriptures talk about. These are two very different kinds of offices. Typically, the way we think of it is that the elders deal with more spiritual things. They're leading the flock. Deacons, while their responsibility may even be a spiritual responsibility, like with visitation or evangelism or something like that, that the mindset is not, not generally speaking of the whole congregation, but very specific avenues of work. But understand, the deacon's role is a separate and important and pertinent role. He says, but let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. 
So the idea is that that work that they do, well, they, they are a natural in the application of their skills to that work. And you'll notice that also in this text, I want you to notice because maybe I never noticed this before. But right here in verse 11, he also makes qualifications for their wives. And he says with the same form that he did with the elders and with the deacons, he says, likewise, their wives must be. Again, the sense that these are requirements. If, if you're going to have a deacon, he's, he's married. His wife is also going to have to fit within some of these qualifications. Now, understanding these qualifications, while qualifications that they must be, they must meet these, these character traits, whatnot, also is descriptive, I think, in large part to the kind of work that they're going to do. So if a deacon is going to be involved in a particular work, especially with a smaller segment of the congregation, then his wife needs to be on board about that. And the very first thing that he required of the deacon himself, he requires of the wife that she also be reverent, not slanderers, temperate and faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife. Ruling their children and their own houses well. Now we'll look at verse 13 a minute as regards the follow-up of that and what a deacon can expect when he serves well. But I'm thinking about these qualifications and the responsibility that is there. And I ask myself, why, why did God tap these specific responsibilities and characteristics? Why, why is it that God calls for these particular things? And I want us to understand if you don't remember anything else about a deacon, I want you to understand that a deacon is God's special servant. And I say special because all of us are servants of the Lord, right? But I'm talking about people who have been called out by a particular kind of character, these qualifications, these attributes that they possess. They've been, they've been segregated from the rest of the congregation because of a certain skill set that they have. They are God's special servants. Now, the word deacon is an unusual word, and in the Greek language, it comes from the word diakonos, diakonos. Diakonos is actually a compound word. The prefix in the Greek is dia, and then that, that root form is, is konos. Dia literally means through, and konos means dust. Now, if you just put those together in an elementary form, you'd say, well, there's someone who goes through the dust. Okay, but back up a little bit and let's ask ourselves, why is it you're going through the dust? <laughs> and what it comes down to is that word used to literally mean someone who kicks up the dust. My father-in-law used to train quarter horses and he had a little arena there beside his house up over by the barn and on some of those dry days he'd be running that horse just round and round and round and round in circles and that horse would work and work and work and every time it ran around that circle guess what uh, just exactly this it was doing the diakonos it was kicking up the dust and the harder it worked the more dust it would kick up you know what our deacons do our deacons kick up the dust in other words, they, they are busy in the work that they do, the assignments that they have. 
It isn't a deal where, you know what, we just, I don't know, we, we want to give some men some honor, so we're going to call them a deacon. It, it is not an honorary title. A deacon is somebody who's given a specific work that they're serious about, passionate about, and they literally, according to that term, they kick up the dust. They get busy in that work, and they're not satisfied until it is accomplished. Does that remind you of anybody? It reminds me of Jesus. And Jesus described him th himself this way in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now that last part was added to show you the extent to which Jesus would serve. He didn't come for people to serve or dote over him. He came with the express purpose of serving all humanity. And the service of all humanity resulted in his death on the cross. That's the extent to which his service would go. Now I ask you, if you're a deacon, uh, to what extent would your service go? <laughs> you're like, well, you know what, I, I, I can't get anybody to help me, so I'm just, you know what, I'm a deacon, but I, I'm not doing that work anymore. You know what, I don't like the assignment that I got, and so I'm just going to kind of piddle along with it till they give me something else to do. No, not if we're going to be a great church. If we're going to be a great church, and I have accepted on the basis of, of my qualification and the commitment that my wife has also made to this work, then whatever the assignment is, hopefully, hopefully it is in line with the skill set that I already have. But whatever that work is, I am absolutely going to kick up the dust. I'm going to get busy and I'm not going to stop. If Jesus died in the accomplishment of his service to us, then what in the world would ever get in the way if I'm a deacon of doing exactly what is necessary for the good of this great church that we're trying to maintain. There is a text that kind of goes along that fashion because here's the thing. I, I know deacons do a lot of great work. And I would say that if we see the work is getting done, but we actually don't even know who the deacons are or which deacon did that thing, then probably things are going pretty well. Most of us don't even know who all the deacons are, except that they're listed on the front of the bulletin. And even with the bulletin, if we went person by person, we probably would not know exactly the assignments that they have. But one thing we do know, we know that they are qualified according to these texts. We know that they have wives who are dedicated to supporting that work with their own qualifications and we know that whatever it is their assignment is, they're going to get that thing done. And apparently we say to ourselves, it must be getting done because we're not lacking. Okay, great, peace. Thank you, deacons. But now I think about those deacons and that qualifying sense. And I also think of something that Jesus said. This is found in Luke chapter 17 and verse 10. That when a servant has done all that he was commanded to do, here's what he says. We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now listen, deacon. You're out there. You're doing some work for the Lord. Please remember that little extension of the sentence I just made. You're doing that work for the Lord. Because sometimes people are just pretty slack about noticing. And maybe I'm the world's worst. 
But I'm going to tell you, if you're doing it for the Lord, you are being recognized. And how is it that you would be recognized? Well, that's where verse 13 was coming into play. Because he says that those who do it well have two things. They have good standing and they have great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, what do you have when you have good standing? Well, the word that is translated standing there literally means a step or a threshold. So kind of the idea is like when you go into your house, right? You come off the patio or whatnot, the, the, the porch on the front. There's just that little step that you make up into the living room or the foyer, whatever, whatever that first room is in your house. So you've come off the regular uh, um, elevation and you take, you take a step up. Good standing literally means to take a step up. Well, Ken, what, what does that have to do with my service as a deacon or the person that I love, the, the, the service that they do as a deacon? What, what does that have to do with anything? Well, kind of the idea most scholars think is that has to do with their reputation. Now, that either has to do with God has seen what they did, and in God's mind, he's moved up a step. You know, he, is, he has fulfilled what was my, my greatest desire for him. Or it could be the sense that when we see a deacon doing their work and maybe they're doing it tirelessly without any acclaim whatsoever, they're just, just kind of going about their work in a very, very dedicated way but never seeking the glory. We just, one day it just kind of dawns on us and, and then what is our attitude about them, right? It just kind of step up. Or it also can mean the view from the outside, here is this guy who is working tirelessly in this body of people. And those people on the outside with whom he already has a good reputation, when they see how he treats those that he loves the most, his church family, the flock of God, when they see him serving them, then in their mind, as much as they esteemed him in the beginning, now they view him in a much better light because of the dedication that he has. But all in all, what we're saying is, look, when you persevere and you do what God has called you to do, and you do it with the right heart, that you're going to take, well, you're going to take a step up. And then he says, also, you obtain great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And again, not real certain about exactly what that means. But great boldness can go from the idea of having courage. It can have to do with fearlessness. But it can also have a meaning associated with assurance. So there is great assurance obtained with a deacon who's gone about doing his work well. And what assurance would that be? Well, of course, since... The derivative is in Christ Jesus. The idea, I think, would be pretty apparent. That is, I know I've done a good work for the Lord. And just as much as Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, would go on to talk about the reward that elders receive when they serve their chief shepherd well, so to the sense that when a deacon has given himself to his work and done his work well, that he also can expect that great assurance of what is to come. 
Now, that pretty well describes the deacon and the heart that they have, but I wanted to give a minute to what he had said about the wife. He said the wife is to be reverent, to not be a slanderer, to be temperate, to be faithful in all things, verse 11. Now, to be reverent, he mentioned that with the deacon, and certainly that's implied with what's going on with the elder. And sometimes when we think about reverence, we think about our approach to God. We're going to revere God. But I don't think that's the application here. She said that's what she has to be, reverent. And that word reverent could also be translated by the word honorable. The sense that she has an honorable disposition. She, she's upright. That makes sense to me. Not only does she give that attribute in direction to God, but her herself, her, her being. She is an honorable person, one to be, well, one to be respected. That makes sense in working with other people as a deacon is going to have to do. And then this, she is not to be a slanderer. A slanderer. Now here's a fun little word study for you. If you go back and look at the qualifications of elders, I want you to look at the very last word in verse 6 and the last word in verse 7. They're the same word. It's the word devil. <laughs> the last word in verse 6, last word in verse 7, devil. That word devil is translated from the Greek word diabolos. Diabolos. She is not to be a slanderer. Well, you know, I did all this lead up for, for this heavy statement. The word slanderer right there is derived from the word diabolos. He says the wives must not be a slanderer, must not be diabolos. Diabolos is devil. Now, our translators... Thankfully, <laughs> didn't say, woman, don't you be a devil. <laughs> it didn't say that. It's slanderer because at the root of that word is the idea of an accuser. But here's the point I want to make by that. When I think about the devil as a slanderer or as an accuser, the first text that comes to my mind is Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. It describes the devil as being an accuser of the brethren. An accuser of the brethren. In fact, in that text, he is accusing the brethren in the presence of God night and day. Now here's what my mind is wrapping up with all of those little pieces that we threw out here on the table. And that is an admonition to the deacon's wife. Now think about this. The deacon is working usually within a smaller segment of the congregation doing his particular works. In some cases, he's going to be working directly with other people. Maybe he's on benevolence. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe he's taking food to people or clothing. Uh, maybe, maybe he's involved in you know, counseling services. I don't know, but he's doing a smaller segment of a much larger work that the elders are overseeing. So here's this deacon, and boy, he's privy to a lot of personal information about people. And sometimes he learns things about people that, well, let's just be kind about it, things that aren't very flattering, maybe embarrassing. Well, the wife, the wife is probably also privy to that information. 
So, you know what? She's, she's going to be an honorable person. And first, right off the bat, following the honorable designation, he says, don't you be a slanderer. Don't you be an accuser. Let's take it by extension. Don't you be an accuser of the brethren. Don't be involved in the spreading of gossip or other things that are going to be destructive to the body of Christ. There's nothing more hurtful than damaging information in the hands of people, honestly, whose business it isn't of their own. So this admonition, we all should be that way, right? I mean, that's not special to that case, except that I'm thinking about the application. You're going to be in a special service. So just, just be sure that you have the right mind in dealing with other people. Don't become, don't become an accuser of other folks, especially here, your, your brethren. It's going to be temperate. The word temperate means literally sober-minded. You could say just kind of uh, moderate in behavior, in control. That's the idea. And then the idea of holding the faith, of, of being faithful. And the sense of that actually has to do with trustworthiness. So I can, you know, I can, I can trust you. Well, a deacon, I don't think there's any question about it, a great deacon must be involved in work. Now, let's kind of wrap these things up. I'm thinking about our great church, and I realize we got to have great elders who are leading. we got to have great deacons who are working. That makes up primarily our leadership team. And then we were thinking about unity and compassion for one another, being brother's keeper. That, that's, that's the body itself. We got to be in line. We talked about preachers last week and our expectation of them. Look, the leaders and the members and the preachers, when they're working together, they're not just co workers with one another. I hope that as we've especially talked about the relationship between the elders and the Lord and the deacons and the Lord, that we are all co workers together, sure, but also co workers with the Lord. And here's something else. I guess I just want to put this out generally as a final kind of statement. And that is that great leaders, and that's what we aspire to. I hope that's what we have upon examination. But great leaders, they build great churches. Thanks for your attention tonight. And I'll hand it back over to Jerry. Thank you, Ken, for that very insightful, very helpful lesson. Uh, just a couple announcements this evening before we close with a prayer. Uh, <clears throat> let's remember in prayer, Martha Eaton, uh, going through rehab at Tupelo. Jordan Coates will be having surgery in Birmingham, uh, 1st of September. Lori Deaton is home following knee surgery. Joan Mormon, home following surgery. Delma Sanchez in hospice, Don Green, preacher at Snowdown, continuing treatments, Melanie Jackson, friend of the Barnett family, Rick Wixom, 
cancer diagnosis. He's a member at Berea. The Pratt family, friends of Drew and Katie Bruce, and Gary Pinnell, panel friend of Drew and Katie Bruce as well. Well, this Sunday, uh, we'll all be here, or a good number of us will. And so, what we'll see this Sunday, we'll all be wearing one of these. Got to put it on the right way. So everybody will look like this. And your glasses might fall, but it, it's not for that long. Some people don't like wearing them, but everybody will, and it's not a big deal. They're not too bad. And uh, when you're inside, they're, they're not hot. They're pretty comfortable. But it's, it's, for, it's for each other. We're doing it for the other person, not just for us. So this Sunday, if you don't have one, we'll have them at each entrance. Grab one. Uh, there'll be hand sanitizer. You can use that. So just like when we were uh, uh, coming together, before we stopped coming together, we're going to do it again. Uh, we'll all wear masks. We'll sit spaced apart based on family and groups. We're going to skip each pew. We'll, we all remember. Uh, when we leave, we're going to leave patiently. We'll uh, leave one pew at a time, and uh, we'll go out all four doors. We won't stop and talk, even though we want to. It's a normal thing. And um, we'll keep our distance. Um, one other thing, of course, the service will be, it'll continue to be live stream. So if you don't come, you can still watch, just like you are now or like we have been uh, on the previous Sundays. And one other thing, this will be a fifth Sunday. And so um, that's something to remember with our donations. One important thing, and I think it's a, a good passage to read concerning the masks, is uh, the note in the bulletin to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, just to remind us about the mask thing. So I believe that's all I have. I'm sure I forgot something, but I always do. So before we leave, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening has been such an insightful, helpful time. The things we have learned and the, the requirements which exist for the very, very important jobs of elders and deacons and wives and members. Dear Lord, the most important jobs in the world. May we always remember that there are rules, there are protocol, there are reasons for these things. May we never let pride get in the way of understanding them and obeying them and doing the right thing, for it all is for the good cause. Dear Lord, we love you, we love each other, and we very much look forward to coming back together this Sunday at 1030 here in this place to worship thee. Dear Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.